0: Friends, let us now listen to Brother Mel Caparos, pastor of Living Word Christian Churches of Cebu International. to go to God's Word at this time, and I'd like everybody to please rise at this time, and let's take a look at James chapter 2, verses 5 to 9. And at the count of three, let's all read together aloud, please, all right? One, two, read. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you once again. Today is your day, the Lord's day, and we thank you that we could come and cause our hearts, Lord, to just be bound together with your heart. And we thank you, Lord, that we could honor you, we could worship you, we could glorify your holy name. And once again, this morning, O oh God, we seek to have an encounter with you. And Lord, you know that as we have an encounter with you, we get refreshed, we get reinvigorated, we get inspired, and that is what we want to happen. And so Lord, we pray that this will not be an ordinary Sunday, but let this be a Sunday to remember because we have encountered you through your word. I ask for your blessing upon myself, O God, May I preach and teach in the power of your Holy Spirit that as the words come out of my lips, O Lord, people might know that you are speaking directly to them. And Lord, whatsoever will be achieved today, we will give you back the glory, the praises, and the thanks. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Let's be seated in the presence of the Lord. This is actually part two of our short series, which we have entitled, The Sin of Favoritism. As I was preaching yesterday on this particular subject matter, I got reminded of what had happened to the nation of Israel. If you recall, the nation of Israel was under severe oppression in Egypt because they were working as slaves at that time. And so this spanned hundreds of years until finally they could no longer take it. And so they cried out to God and they cried out for a deliverer. And God answered that prayer by sending to them Moses. And Moses was able to perform signs, miracles, and wonders all over Egypt. And yet Pharaoh had hardened his heart. And because of that, It took a while before they were able to come out of Egypt. But it was really dramatic the way they came out because the Bible records for us that the Red Sea was divided and that they were able to cross through dry land. And so en route to the land of Canaan, the land of promise, they had to go through the wilderness. And it was there actually that their hearts were revealed. And it was so unfortunate because God had redeemed them. God had delivered them from the nation of Egypt. But in the wilderness, it was seen that Egypt was still very much in their hearts. Egypt was still in their hearts. They were able to remove themselves physically from Egypt, but Egypt and its culture and everything about it, the worldliness in Egypt was something that remained in their hearts. I'd like to be able to submit to you that even as you and I have been delivered by God, even as we have experienced redemption and atonement from Him, you and I are probably still experiencing some of the remnants of worldliness. And could it be that one of those remnants could be the sin of favoritism or the sin of discrimination? And as we look into this particular passage, we find that this remnant of the sin of favoritism actually was very much present in the churches that James was addressing. And we were saying in our previous sermon. That discrimination and favoritism have no place in the body of Christ for the simple reason that it is sin. You and I know that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he destroyed all the divides, all the barriers. And sadly, sometimes we still see those divides, not only in our society, but we see those divides even in church. And once again, that is not right. And wordliness is sometimes seen in our treatment of our less fortunate brethren. And so I'm hoping and praying that if Egypt or if wordliness still remains in our hearts, it might be removed. And hopefully, this sermon this morning might help us in this particular matter. So allow me to show you how this sermon will flow this morning. So let me share to you three points. First major point is God's treatment versus the believer's treatment of the poor man. And here is how you and I see how we are so vastly different from God. So first sub point is we will see God's election of the poor that has to do with the electing grace of God into salvation for the poor people. And then we find the believers, the church's rejection of the poor. And again, this speaks of the sad state of the churches at that time. And so we will go move, we will go and move to the next point, the next major point, which is the unbelieving rich man's treatment of the believers. All right. And what do we see here? Two things. They were oppressing and suing the believers in court. And secondly, they were blaspheming the Christian name, the name of the Lord. The third and final point, which I would like to be able to share to you this morning is the proper and the improper treatment of all men. Under this, we have two sub points. First of all, the principle of the proper treatment of all men. And then, the sin and indictment of preferential treatment. So that is what you can expect for this morning's sermon. So let's go straight right now to our first point, which is God's treatment versus believer's treatment of the poor man. Now let's go straight to verse 5. It reads, Listen, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? Now, notice here that this uh, verse begins with the word, listen. James is calling the people to pay attention to something very important that he had to say. Something that would somehow have an impact in so far as their treatment of their poorer brothers were concerned. Now, you and I know that James was addressing not anybody else, but he was addressing specifically the believers in Christ. Because notice it says, my beloved brethren. So he's not talking to all people. It's not talking to people outside the church but rather he was talking to people in the church. So this problem was not happening outside the church, but rather it was happening inside the church. And I would like to venture to say that this was actually sad because as I mentioned to you, what Jesus accomplished at the cross was the destruction of all the divides and barriers that men have in between them. And that is why in the book of Galatians, we are told that all men are equal. All men are equal in Christ Jesus. But sadly, while this was really what should be happening, in practical terms, this was not happening at all. And that is why James is not mincing any words here in this particular letter. He had to address this because this was really wrong. Because this was not a reflection of their Savior. At the cross, Jesus reflected perfect love. That was what was on display at the cross. And that is why we as believers in Christ, we who are believers in the cross, should somehow be able to display that love that Jesus displayed at the cross. Now here we find how God treated The poor people. It says here that God honored the poor man, and the way this is sometimes manifested is by electing him and choosing him for salvation. Now, I do not want a misunderstanding of this particular passage because some of you might begin to think that only the poor would get saved. That might be the initial impression that you and I might have. And you might also begin to think that God is against the rich. Now, you and I are to be mindful of the fact that when James was writing this particular letter, he was writing to people of his time. He was not writing to us. He was writing to people at that time. And obviously, there was a situation in life that was taking place in those times, particularly in the churches that James was addressing. So let us be mindful of that because at times we could take this and remove this out of context and we might begin to think, well, what is the hope that I have to be saved? And you and I understand that rich in the Bible doesn't mean necessarily a millionaire or a billionaire. It's not being in the Forbes list of millionaires or billionaires. The Bible defines rich as having more than enough. And so if you have a savings account, even if you only have a few thousand, you are already considered rich in the Bible. So the question is, well, what's going to happen to us? For those of us who have savings, does it mean that you and I will not be saved? Again, let me tell you that James was talking about a particular situation at that time. Now, here in this particular case, we find that many had been elected by the Lord. And many of those whom were elected by the Lord into salvation happened to be very poor people. And probably just for a better appreciation of this particular passage, let us be mindful that a lot of people in Israel at that time were actually poor. And a major contributing factor with this was the fact that they were under the Roman Empire and they had hired tax gatherers who actually abused their authority And they extorted a lot of money out of their fellow Jews. The result of that, of course, was that they were impoverished. There were a lot of Jews at that time who were quite poor. Of course, there were those tax gatherers who made a money, who made a killing, so to speak, out of their uh, tax collecting. And of course, there were the Sadducees who were known to be very wealthy people. So that was the situation at that particular time. And James was saying, Look at what has happened in our case. God has brought into his kingdom a lot of these poor people. And what does that make them? That makes them rich, it says here. God chose, or rather, God, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith? And heirs of the kingdom in so far as God was concerned he saw them as rich and heirs of the kingdom it's interesting it's ironical that while the believers while the church saw their poor brothers as being poor God saw these people as being rich and wealthy why because they were sons and daughters of the king And that is why in so far as God was concerned, these poor brothers were actually the really wealthy ones. They had a bright future ahead of them. God had prepared an inheritance for them in heaven. And there they would receive and enter into the mansions that God himself has prepared. So here's what. James was saying, they're the ones who are really rich. They're the ones who are really wealthy. But look at how you have treated these poor brothers. Why is it that you are exercising preferential treatment? You know, it's quite interesting to note that if you do a little study in church history, you will find recorded that there there have been more poor people who have joined themselves to the church as compared to the rich. Let me say it again. Church history records that there have been more poor people who have joined themselves to the church as compared to the rich. Again, let's balance this. In so far as God's election of the poor are concerned, we need to note, we need to consider again this situation As a specific time and a specific dealing of God at the time of James' writing. The election of the poor should not be taken as a general rule for all times and all seasons. Alright? Let's not take that as a general rule. Otherwise, rich people have a tremendous dilemma. All right. And so again, we're talking about a situation here. So again, let me repeat what I mentioned a while ago. God is not anti-rich. We find a host of examples in the Bible of people whom God himself had enriched. You have the example of Abraham, the example of Isaac and Jacob. They were blessed and prospered by God. And then you also have the case of Joseph the dreamer, who later on became the prime minister of Egypt. And then you have the story of Queen Esther. She was an ordinary Jewish woman in Persia, and later on she was picked to be queen of that kingdom. So instantly she became wealthy. And then the book of Deuteronomy says that it is God who gives us the power to become wealthy. So if God were against riches, if God were against wealthy people, why then in the world will He empower some people to become wealthy? So it's is not anti-rich. He is not against rich people. But rather, here's what I would like to say. Many times, it is the rich that is anti-God. Let me say it again. The problem sometimes, the rich are sometimes anti-God. Now, when I say anti-God, I do not mean to say that they're raising their fists against God or that they are shouting against the heavens. Now, I'm not saying that. But in terms of attitude, you will see that many times, wealthy people will prefer their money over and above God. The Bible is very clear. The first commandment tells us that thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy mind, with all thy soul, and with all thy strength. That is what God requires of all human beings. But unfortunately, people have idols in their hearts. There are things that have become their supreme treasure. It could be popularity, it could be fame, it could be success, but it could also be money. And I believe that that is one of the reasons why Jesus Christ said that you cannot serve both God and mammon. Because oftentimes, money can be the chief rival of God. Actually, God has no rivals. God has no competitors. He is so transcendent, so above us. That he is beyond compare. He is the richest of the rich. He is the greatest of the greats, And he is beyond compare. But sadly, to some people, they have belittled the significance and the relevance and the essence of God. And that's why to some people, money becomes more important than God himself. And that's the reason why I say many rich people are at times anti-God. Let me share to you a story from the Scriptures. Let's take a look at Matthew chapter 19, please, beginning at verse 16. It says here, And someone came to Jesus and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. Now notice here, Jesus was laying before him a very important truth. What was he saying? He was saying, why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good, and that is God, obviously. Now, by stating that, what do you think was Jesus trying to imply? If only God is good, that means all men are evil. That means all men are sinners. And that is confirmed by Paul himself in Romans chapter 3, when he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So here, Jesus was laying before him a very important principle. Only God is good. And by the way, what do you think would be the implication of that in relation to Christ? Well, if Christ is good, that also means He is God, all right? So that's a very important sidebar there. But continuing on, Jesus had known even before this man came to Him that this man was thinking That I could be saved by my own goodness. That I could be saved by my own good works. Somehow this man was coming to Jesus Christ wanting to be validated by Christ. He had so much self-confidence in himself and he perceived that he was one of those likely candidates to enter heaven. But his self confidence was just about to be pricked and deflated by the Lord Jesus Christ to debunk his thinking that he was really good. Anyway, Jesus goes along with him with his own thinking that he could be saved by his own good works. So here's what Jesus says He goes, But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. And if you take a look at the context, The phrase here, keep the commandments, doesn't mean selective obedience. But keeping the commandments here means that you have to keep the law perfectly. Without any sin, without any mistake, without any failure. You can't miss the mark. So if you want to be saved by good works, here's how. You need to live a perfect life. That's the point of Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, we find here that the man was still quite confident. Probably he was comparing himself with his neighbors and other people. And he felt, well, I feel good about myself. I feel that I would qualify. And again, here's how Jesus deflates that ego, that, that self-confidence. So Jesus gives him a list. All right. So here in verse 18, the man said to Jesus, which ones? And Jesus said, well, here's a list. You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, my imagination here as, is as Jesus was giving this list to this rich man, he was, he was checking it all. Done. 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 Done, done, done. So he was thinking, I'm good. I am going to be saved. And then, notice what happens here. Verse 20. The young man said to Jesus, all. This is self-confidence here. All these things I have kept. What am I still lacking? So he was thinking, well, I think Jesus will start validating me. he will will start telling me how how good a person I am and that I've done well and that I'm about to enter heaven. But that's not exactly what happened. In verse 20, again, or rather in verse 21, it goes, Jesus said to him, well, if you wish to be complete, here's what you need to do. Go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Now, let me ask you this question. Do you think Jesus was teaching us that if we sold all of our possessions, we would go to heaven? Actually, no. Jesus was making a very important point here. Now, what was the point? There was something this man was missing. One of the Ten Commandments says, Thou shall not, what? Covet. And this man, as you and I mentioned a while ago, was very self-confident. But Jesus wanted to point out to him, well, you may have followed some of these commandments, but there's definitely something that is lacking in your life. You have violated and transgressed one of the Ten Commandments, which says, thou shall not covet. And Jesus was, in effect, saying, I am about to prove to you That you love money more than God. That you will not be willing to give up and surrender your wealth. Even if it means going to heaven. Because you love your money more than God. That's the point that Jesus was trying to bring here. So let's go on with the story. It says in verse 22, and look at what happened. All of a sudden the self-confidence was gone but when the young man heard this statement he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property and jesus said to his disciples truly i say to you it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven and why is it hard not because salvation is something difficult in fact Is the easiest thing for us to receive because salvation is a gift that comes from God. We don't have to work for it. We don't have to earn it. But understand that when we accept Jesus as Savior, we not only accept Him as Savior, we should accept Him as Lord. And so even while salvation in itself is a free gift from God... It also means that when we say to God, save me, you are saying to him, be the Lord of my life. You own me. I am now your slave. I belong to you. And whatever you want of me, I'm willing to follow as you empower me with the Holy Spirit. And that's something sometimes people don't understand. And so Jesus goes on and he says, again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Have you ever seen the eye of the needle? Amen. Raise your hands, please, if you've seen the eye of the needle. All right. You know, it's that small hole. And some of you may not even know that a camel is a humongous animal. I recall when some of us in church went to Israel and Egypt, one of the things that we experienced was riding a camel. And a camel is, is this high. And so for you to be able to ride a camel, here's what the people would do. They would, they would pull the reins of the camel so that it would kneel down. And when it knelt down, that's the time you could actually ride over the camel. Because it is that Big. And Jesus was applying a bit of humor here, actually. He was saying, it's easier for a camel, can you imagine? It's easier for a camel this big to enter into the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why is that so? What is the impediment? What is the barrier? It is the love of money. God will not entertain any rivals and competitors. Either he is king of your life or he is not king at all. Either he is lord of your life or he is not lord at all. God requires absolute allegiance, absolute commitment to himself. And why not? He created us. What right do we have To withhold anything from God. We have no right to withhold anything from Him. And by the way, friends, just as a sidebar, that's the reason why God requires us to tithe. Why do you think He requires us to tithe? Because He's after our money? Because He wants to enrich Himself? I mean, God doesn't need our money. God owns everything. So why do you think he is asking you and I to be faithful in our tithing? For one simple reason. He's checking our hearts. It is here that we can prove to God that He alone is our supreme treasure. And I would like to say, and I think the Bible would confirm this, that if you and I are truly genuine Christians it would be easy on our part to part from our own earthly treasures because we have found the greatest treasure of all, Jesus Christ. Amen. He is the greatest treasure of all. So again, um, as we study this particular passage, it is ironic that While this was happening in those churches, they had actually dishonored the poor man and preferred the rich man. Notice in verse 6 what it says here. But you have dishonored the poor man. Here we find the believer's rejection of the poor. Whereas God elected the poor, whereas God chose the poor, the believers rejected the man whom God had greatly honored. The believers of that time had rejected their poorer brothers who were already part of the family of God. These poor people were not strangers. They were not newcomers. They were people who had already become part of the family of God. And some of you I know are thinking, why is that happening? Why was that happening in the church? Most especially at that time, didn't they just have an outpouring of God's Spirit? Wasn't there a mighty revival that took place at that time? Why was that happening in the church of that time? Well, friends, I'd like you to know that there is no perfect church. And even during that time, even as they had been redeemed and cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, somehow there was a bit of worldliness that was still in their hearts. That needed to be removed. And that's why if you're looking for a perfect church, you will not find it this side of heaven. You want to find a perfect church? You need to die first. All right? And when you get to be in heaven, that's where you find the perfect state. But while you and I are here, we, have, we will have to content ourselves with the fact that we are all flawed. That we are still beset by the remnant of the flesh, the remnant of sin that remains in our hearts. But having said that, there is no excuse. We need to overcome all that worldliness. We need to grow into conformity to Christ. We need to grow from glory to glory. That's what needs to happen. Now, once again, let me just point out that God is not anti-rich. He is against our preferring the rich over the poor. That's what he is against. What James is saying here is, you want to treat the rich man well? You want to give him the VIP seat? That's fine. But also give the poor brother a VIP seat. All right? Treat them equally. Haven't you noticed in the banks? Sometimes you're lining up. It's a long line. You want to make a deposit or you want to withdraw. And sometimes it takes you an hour or maybe even more than an hour just to be able to transact with the teller. But then all of a sudden, here comes this Johnny-come-lately, all right? And he just goes straight to a counter and then, you know, bypassing everybody else, and then you see him scooting away after making a very quick transaction. And then you see the counter says, preferred clients. All right? Amen? Have you experienced that in the banks? Preferred clients. Now, I understand where that's coming from. That's a bank. Amen? They're there for your money. All right? So that's perfectly fine. Because that's business. That's the banking industry. I understand where that's coming from. But that should not be happening in church. Amen? That should not be happening in church. And here, we prefer everybody. Amen? Everybody. That is how it is supposed to be. Moving on to verse 6. Notice what it says here. It says, but you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? Now here we find our second point, major point, the unbelieving rich man's Treatment of the believers. In other words, those who were non-Christian wealthy people, how they treated the believers. First of all, we are told of oppression ensuing in court. This is seen in this statement. It says, is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Now, these rich unbelievers had oppressed them and dragged them into courts. Once again, let me note, this is talking of a specific time and a specific situation of the rich during the time of James' writing. Let's take note of that. James was not writing to us. He was writing to people of that time. So this is not intended to be a truth of all rich people for all time. We would like to think that because we're more educated and civilized, perhaps, that this is not happening in our day and time. Of course, you and I know that this is still happening. But again, this was the general characteristic of the people, of the rich people at that time. Now that may not necessarily be true in the cases of some wealthy people nowadays, all right? So again. This was what they were doing. But worse than that, it gets worse. They blasphemed the Christian name. It says here, do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? They were called Christians. They were called believers. And yet these rich unbelievers, non-Christians had blasphemed the Christian name. Again, this is talking of a specific time and a specific situation. This may not necessarily be true in our time. But it is ironical that the believers were giving preferential treatment to the unbelieving rich people who were wicked. Yet, at the same time, they were despising their poor fellow brothers. The point of James is not that the rich should be treated lesser than the poor. That's not the point. James is not saying, you know what? Let the rich people sit on the footstool or let them stand in the corner. That's not what he's saying here. He's just saying, let all have equal treatment. Again, that's very important to point out because we might have the impression, listen, James appeared to have a grudge against you know, wealthy people. Maybe he got sued. Maybe he got dragged into court. Maybe he was insulted and mocked. And maybe that's the reason why he's writing this. Well, no. And James is not at all saying that we need to treat lesser people. I'm sorry, treat rich people in a lesser way. No, that's not what he's saying. Treat all men equally. So we go to the third. And the principle found in Scripture. So we go to the proper and the improper treatment of all men. Verse 8 reads, If however you are fulfilling the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. This is really all about love. And remember what I mentioned to you? Because the cross is the perfect display of God's love, we as believers in Christ should also be able to display that love. Interestingly, and here's where I see the wisdom of God, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table once again. And going back to the background in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when uh, Paul was reminding them of the words of Jesus Christ before he died, he was telling them that their problem was also, interestingly, preferential treatment. Remember the background that I shared to you a few uh, months back? What they were doing during the Lord's Supper was they had this love feast. They were coming to church or they were coming to the houses of believers, potluck, and they were bringing food. And uh, rich people were going to the inner rooms and they were devouring all the food that they had brought in. So by the time Though the, the, the poor people came into church or came into those homes, there was no more food or there was very little food. And yet, guess what? They were celebrating the Lord's Supper. Isn't that ironic? That is why friends, let me tell you this. As we, we celebrate today's Lord's table, let us be reminded, this is about love. And we are supposed to love each other. And it is reflected in this commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So that is the proper treatment of all men. This verse is to be taken in relation to all men, but most especially to the poor within this context. We are to love our neighbor in this case to be taken as meaning, especially the poor, as ourselves. The only way you and I can really love other people is to put ourselves in their shoes. Sometimes the reason why we can't love people is because we don't understand where they are coming from. Try living in the streets. Try being homeless. Try not having a meal, maybe during lunch. I recall a story and let me just share this. This came from a book and the book is entitled Black Like Me, which told the story of John Griffin. He was a white man, but you know what he did? He darkened his skin in an effort to understand what it meant to be a black in a predominantly white society. More recently, a 30-year-old lady, an industrial designer, disguised herself as a senior citizen. Once a week for three years, she was trying to see how it feels to be old in America. Sometimes that's the way to do it. You can only love your neighbor as yourself when you understand where they're coming from, what they are experiencing. Their pains, their hurts, their struggles, their difficulties, the adversities that they go through. And that is why, again, friends, the Bible calls us to love our neighbor as ourselves. And this proper treatment of all men finds approval with God. Let me share to you a little story once again. And shared in the first person, it goes something like this. It goes, while visiting in the home of a friend, I watched several purple grackles feeding in the yard. These birds were beautiful, with their heads and necks a metallic violet green and their black bodies, accented by glossy colors. And as I studied them more closely, I noticed that in the middle of the flock was a bird with only one leg. Apparently, a trap or an accident had left it maimed or injured. The markings on its head and chest told me it was not exactly like the others. Yet as I looked through the binoculars, I observed that it was not excluded from the meal on the lawn. None of the other birds pushed it aside or refused to let it eat. Though it was somewhat different from the rest, It belonged to the same family and was welcome in the group. Sometimes birds and animals do better than us, don't they? And sometimes children do better than us as well. I recall I I grew up in a mixed neighborhood. Uh, It was really a strange mix. There were really wealthy, wealthy people, people who were homeowners. But on the other side, you would find squatters. But you know what? When you're a kid, you don't have those divides in your mind. The only thing you know is that you're a kid and you're looking for other kids to play with. And I recall that when I grew up, I grew up with these squatters. I played with them. I played basketball with them played marbles with them, played card games with them. They were my friends. There was no divide for the simple reason that you're a kid growing up. And thankfully, when I grew up, even going into college, they were still my friends. And I believe that's one of the reasons why God wants us to be childlike in our faith, because sometimes children there, 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 there are some good attributes and characteristics of children. Children are so receiving. They are so welcoming. And that's how you and I are to be. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves. I recall another story. There was a shabbily dressed boy who trudged several miles through the snowy streets of Chicago. That's why it's called Windy City. It's it's really chilly and cold there. But he was determined to attend a Bible class that was conducted by D.L. Moody. When he arrived, he was asked this question. Why did you come to a Sunday school so far away? Why didn't you go to one of the churches near your home? And he answered simply, because you love a fellow here. Because you love a fellow here. Shakespeare said this They do not truly love who do not show their love. Let me say it again. They do not truly love who do not show their love. You know, we've got to begin thinking how do I apply this? And obviously, the first place wherein this should be applied should be here in church. We should really be very welcoming to everybody that comes to this church. By the way, that's the reason why I ask you to introduce yourselves to two or three new people in church. My thinking is that there are some new people who have come here, maybe for the first time, or maybe they've been attending twice or thrice, and we need to reach out to them. We need to make them feel that they are welcome here in church, but that should not only happen here, it should also translate outside the church. I recall my wife who compared to me is more generous than I am actually. And she always thinks of this family. We used to have a neighbor in this quarters area and they live in a one room affair, everything's there. The bedroom, the sala, the kitchen, that's it. One bedroom, really small, a few square meters. I mean, it's probably just a slice of this stage. And every Christmas, my wife would do something special for them. She would bring in some goodies, sometimes prepare cash and food for them. You know. These are ways wherein we could actually reach out to the community. Know that we care. Because the cross, after all, is about love. And if people are going to listen to the message of the cross, they have got to be able to see that we are willing to love our neighbors as ourselves. Otherwise, forget preaching to them. They will not listen to you. You need to show them Love And Shakespeare was right. They do not truly love who do not show their love. We come to the end of this and we see the sin and the indictment of preferential treatment. Look at verse 9, please. It says, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin. It's a sin. Some of us might not think it's a big sin, but it is sin. And notice what James says, and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Partiality is a sin, and therefore in relation to the laws of God, we are sinners. Favoritism likewise is a sign that we are lacking in love. That's why James brings in this commandment to love our neighbors as ourselves. Preferential treatment brings in an indictment of guilt. We are guilty we are transgressors and again friends the way to the path of love is through the path of empathy let me close with a story in 1981 they held a special olympics in mount pleasant michigan and nearly three thousand special athletes competed in summer games in which caring was more important than winning. Another factor that distinguished this unusual competition from others was that the participants, all at least eight years old, were mentally impaired. According to Bob Becker of the Grand Rapids Press, the events were run like those in any other track meet, with one exception. Each finish line was manned by what Special Olympians dubbed as the huggers. Their job, in addition to calling out the winners, was to encourage each competitor throughout the race and to greet each one at the finish line with a hug and a pat on the back. Becker said that love was the key to the event's success. You know what we need in church? We need more huggers. Amen. That's what we need. And why not? Our God is the greatest hugger of all time. Amen. He's the greatest of all time. And so let's prepare our hearts with those thoughts. As we celebrate the Lord's table, may I request our worship team, to please come and help us uh, prepare our hearts. And may I request also our communion servers to help us distribute the elements. Again, this uh, Lord's Table is exclusively for believers, for those who know Jesus Christ. And you might say, well, isn't God being discriminating? No, He is inviting you. The Lord's table, yes, is exclusively for believers because only they can understand what it really means that salvation is a free gift from God. But Gordon Fee is right. The Lord's table is also an invitation. God is telling you there's a feast here. If anyone is thirsty, let him come and drink. Jesus is inviting all to feast on His blood, so to speak, that we might be forgiven of all our sins, past, present, and future. So for those of you who have not yet accepted Christ as Lord and Savior in your life, understand that salvation is a free gift. You don't work for it. It's a gift you receive. And right where you are right now, you may want to accept Christ and say, Lord, I now understand I can't save myself. So, Lord, save my soul. And I surrender myself to you, Lord. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. The Bible declares that when you do that, you shall receive eternal life. Your sins would be forgiven. Your name would be written in the book of life. When you understand that, then you can celebrate with us. And that's the reason why it has to be understood. Before you take the bread and the wine, you have to understand what it means. And hopefully today, where you are, you make that decision to make Jesus the Lord of your life. You can do that by praying to Him. So let's ask the worship team to prepare us right now.